Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Before we get started with the message, before we, um, before we read any scripture, we're going to have a little participation activity, okay? So, I know that some of you are pretty big, like some of you are college football fans. Some of you like college teams, you know? Some of you, already, we have, already, we have, see, we've already, we got them speaking up here. They're already, before we ever start with this, they're already getting involved, so I'm going to name some of those teams, and if, if that's your person, if that's your team, I want you to stand up, okay? So I want you to stand up. So I heard it go dogs first. We live in Georgia. If you're a Georgia Bulldog, let's stand to your feet. Georgia Bulldogs in the house. Casey's representing over there. He's got his, his own over there. That's it. I like it. Look at Shelby Whittle. Look at that Georgia fam. All right, y'all can sit down. How about the Alabama Roll Tide people? Any of them in the house? Oh, my word. <laughs> How about that Tennessee Orange? Just a few folks in Tennessee. Oh, there we go. There's some of those in here. Is, yeah. Is there anybody that I've missed? If, if I did not call your team, stand up. If you're passionate about football and I didn't call your team, Auburn person, what? Florida Gators. Okay. Who, where's, y'all know, I was fixing to say, where's the Gamecocks fan? <laughs> That's a joke. That's not real. I mean, sort of. Um, <laughs> I don't have time to explain it from the pulpit. You, you already this morning are showing, are showing a little bit that, like, that you're helping me do this. In just a second, when we start talking through this sermon, Everything we've just done will be really helpful. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. To Genesis chapter 14. A while ago when I asked you about your college football team and you stood up. Listen, I didn't even have to ask you to stand up. We heard a go dogs and a roll tide before we ever started. Immediately, Pam and Heath were identifying with a team. They were taking their stand and they were on that side, Right? The rest of you, when, when I called those teams, you stood up and, and you, you pledged yourself, you set yourself with this team. Some of you, not only, in your, uh, not only in just standing up, it wasn't enough to stand up. You stood up, screamed, gave it all kind of cheers. You were ready to go, right? Identifying with that team. Think about Abram for just a minute. Think about Abraham and his story. We've been walking through the story of Abraham. That's what we've been doing on Sunday morning. We have been thinking about what it means to learn to trust God because that's what Abraham's life is showing us. He's, he's learning, he's growing, and you see God doing things in him. And, and Abram, when he, when he was called by God and he left his homeland in Ur, he left that pagan place to follow the one true God, he was identifying with that one true God. He was saying to all those people in Ur, this is where I'm going. This is where my devotion is. The way you stood up and cheered for your team, wore your colors. You know, um, uh, when, when, you, when you stood up and did that, the same way Abraham made a stand for the Lord, he left Ur and he came to Canaan. 
Every time in Canaan, every time that he built an altar, be it at Bethel, be it at Hebron, when he built an altar and he worshiped the one true God, he was taking a stand and showing those pagan Canaanites around him where his loyalty, where his devotion was. And every time that you see him in this story, not every time is he exemplifying obedience, but in a lot of these stories, we're seeing him make a stand, honor the Lord, and learning to trust God is is about submitting to God in every situation. If we're learning to trust God, we're going to submit to him. You know, nobody likes a fair weather fan. Nobody likes that person who's a Who's a, who's a fan one day when things are, are going well, but then when that team's not doing well or when things are not going well for that team, you know. And the same is true. Learning to trust God is about saying, this is where my devotion is, no matter what the circumstances look like, no matter what influences come along, no matter what the thing is that surrounds this is where my devotion is. It's to him. Today, in the text that we're going to read, we're going to read the, the latter part of Genesis 14. And in the text, you're going to see Abram come back. We read last week that heroic rescue where he goes and he rescues Lot. And we use that to talk about the great lengths to which Christ has gone to, to redeem sinful man. And as, we, as he returns from that rescue mission, what we're going to read about today is, is Abram is confronted with two different kings. And those two kings are representative of two different ways of life. And Abram's going to have to make a choice. He's going to have to make an alliance. He's going to have to make a stand. And it's it's interesting to see how how this plays out. This choice that he has to make is the choice that you and I must make every day. Today we're going to talk about the title of the message today is Submitting to the Right King. In your life, in mine, we will submit to someone. We will submit. We will serve someone. The question is, who will we serve? Today, let's talk a little bit about submitting to the right king. We're going to read Genesis 14. We're going to read the last half. We're going to start in verse 17. It says, after Abram's return from the defeat of Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons Take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. In this passage, we're reading about two different kings, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and Bera, the king of Sodom. And there's real symbolism in these two kings. Listen, I'm fixing to tell you what those things mean. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means peace. 
Berah is the king of Sodom, which means burning. I think already, immediately, you can find where we're supposed to submit, where we would choose to submit to him. Verse 17 tells us that this meeting happened in the valley of Sheva as he returns the king's valley, it says, which is most likely a, a little place east of Jerusalem where three little valleys meet in this little plain and that's where, well, that's where they were. The king of Sodom, Berah, told Abram, you can take all the spoils of war, take all these spoils, just return the people of Sodom to me. Return those citizens of Sodom to my rule and you can have all the material possessions that you want. Abram rejected that offer, but he accepted the bread and wine that Melchizedek brought, and he, in fact, gives him a tithe of the, these spoils. He gives Melchizedek tithes, a tenth of everything, it says in verse 20. These two kings represent two opposite ways of life and this choice that we all must make. And so let's take a moment to examine these two kings and the choice that they represent in our life. The first king that we encounter in the text is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a king that points to Christ. First king that you need to see in this story is a king that points to Christ. You know, Melchizedek, it says, was the king of Salem. And you understand that when we're using king of Sodom, king of Salem, as we talked about last week, that king is kind of a loose term. It's it's more like a, a head of a city-state. It's, it's the Sodom, this city, Salem, which is an old word for Jerusalem. When you think about Salem, it would be around that area of Jerusalem. Even you hear it in the Jerusalem. It's in that last little bit, right? And so thinking about this idea that he is this king who comes, we immediately understand and see that in the text, it's very clear that Melchizedek was a follower of the one true God. He talks a lot in, in verse 18, in verse 19, in verse 20. It points to the God most high. El Elyon is the, the Hebrew there. This God most high, God lifted above all gods. And this is not some local deity that, was, that, was, that Salem had attached itself to. This wasn't some false god where they believed in, you know, a lot of the Canaanites might believe in, you know, all this monothe, I mean, this, uh, you know, polytheistic kind of world where all these gods were there. It wasn't that he just believed in a single God, but it wasn't the one true God. It, he's talking about the God most high. The one true God is who he's worshiping here. That's who he, his trust is in. This is, tells us in verse 18 that he was a priest of the God most high. Don't quite know what that means when you think about this here in Genesis. This is before the law of Moses, and so he wasn't a priest in the same way that Aaron was a priest. He wasn't a priest of that old covenant law. It wasn't that he was offering sacrifices in that way, but it seems to be that he was one who was serving others and serving the Lord, and as he was leading that that city-state, leading that community of Salem, he was pointing people to God. He was serving the Lord. And you read this, it doesn't tell us how Melchizedek came to know the one true God. We don't know how he heard about him. We don't know if, if, um, if maybe some descendant of, of, of Noah's, if there was somewhere along the way where there had been hit where his family had been one who had served the one true God, or if God had appeared to him and called him the same way that he had Abram. We don't know that. But we know that on, at this occasion, in this moment, his devotion is to the one true God. 
Now, when I read that name, Melchizedek, that probably, for some of you, that was not a new name. For some of you, it may be. It may be the first time you're ever hearing that name. But for those of you that may be students of Scripture, that was probably not a new name for some of you. Melchizedek is, is representative of Christ. As I, as I put in here, it's a king that points to Christ. When you read in Scripture, very clearly Melchizedek points to Christ. In fact, some would take it a step further. Some would believe that Melchizedek here is Christ. It's a theophany is what you call that, where you know Christ was born to Mary in Bethlehem, but you have these instances in the Old Testament where you see God in the flesh, and those are theophanies. A great example would be, say, remember Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they were in the fiery furnace? Remember there was a fourth man that appeared in the fire, and they said that his appearance was like unto the Son of God, right? And, and so if you think about that as a theophany, the, the facial features that were represented on that person that was in the fire, you think about that being the same facial features that would have walked with Peter and James and John, taught them, right? This, this God in the flesh walking among them. And some people say that that's who Melchizedek is, that it is, it is God in the flesh speaking to Abraham there's an argument to be made there. We'll look at some verses in a minute where you might can make that argument. I don't know that I take it that far. I believe that certainly, though, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a symbol of Christ when you read in this text. When you look at Melchizedek, he's mentioned several times in Scripture, and certainly in Scripture, he's a mystery. Those that would say that this is a theophany would point to a verse like in Hebrews. This is in Hebrews 7 in verse 3 where it says that Melchizedek is without a father or a mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, pointing to the idea that this is, this is, this is Christ, not born to a mother and a father. His existence is not about that. Having no genealogy, being a being in this, it's almost like he dropped from the clouds, is what John Calvin said. It's like it's this person who just drops from the clouds. So people sometimes will point to that, right? Melchizedek is mentioned three times in Scripture. We're reading about one here in Genesis 14. Another mention is in Psalm 110 and verse 4. And in Psalm 110, in that in that whole chapter, it's a it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David who's speaking about the coming Christ. In Psalm 110 and verse 4, we read these words, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, God had made this promise to David that a descendant of David would sit on the throne and would rule forever. And so he's saying, and this is like you're, you're in this order of Melchizedek, like Melchizedek. It's a, it's a comparison, comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. You also mentioned a while ago in Hebrews 7, that whole chapter, we don't have time to read that whole chapter, but that whole chapter summarizes the idea that, that Melchizedek is king of Salem and priest of God most high. And who is Jesus for us? King of kings, Lord of lords. He's our great high priest Who's, who's interceding on our behalf before God the Father. And so this king-priest idea that you get with Melchizedek, that's kind of the correlation that you should have in your mind with Jesus, king and priest. 
that the, the last part of Hebrews 7 and verse 3, the last part of that verse says that Melchizedek is resembling the Son of God, and he continues a priest forever. Also, kind of just looking at our passage today and some similarities that people have pointed out, um, I don't know how much you want to read into this. Some people have read a whole lot into it, but verse 18 tells us that Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram with bread and with wine. And when we think about bread and wine, our minds probably immediately go to like the Lord's Supper and how that's representative of Christ's sacrifice for us. And so some people go down a whole road of how this is foreshadowing Christ. And there's a picture there in his death. And I don't know, that, I don't know how far we want to take that. It, it's a very practical thing that Melchizedek does. If you don't look at any symbolism behind it, his bringing nourishment out to Abram, who's come back from this battle, is this show of friendship and this sign of alliance with him. It's interesting, though, that in this text, Abram does submit to him. Do you see that? Melchizedek gives all the credit to God. He, in verse 19, blesses Abram. And, and he, he, he says, you know, I want to bless you, Abram. I want God to bless you. God is the possessor of heaven and earth. He can bless you. And then verse 20 is a praise to God. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. His focus is on God's glory. In addition to that, you see in the last part of verse 20 that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He gave him a part of these spoils of war. Abram submitted to this king. This is the moment where you see Abram throwing his lot in with Melchizedek. He's, he's, he's allying himself with Melchizedek. He's submitting to him. One commentator that I was reading this week said, Abram bows only to Melchizedek in a story filled with kings. So it's interesting to me that while Melchizedek is often used in Scripture to talk about Christ, even Abram, who may not have had a concept of Christ and the Son of God and the redemption of the world and the way that God would do it, all of the things that you find here is him submitting his life to Christ. I believe that's what he calls for me and you. You know, Mark and I were talking this week as I was riding over to, to Elite. We were talking about what, what we did just a minute ago when I was telling him that I thought that I was thinking about how to do that, about asking you to stand up about your football team and that sort of thing. I didn't really tell him where I was going with the message. I was just talking about that particular thing that we were going to do. And Mark said, what are you saying here? Are you saying, you know, that we'll, you know, find a football game on TV and we'll schedule our whole life about being able to sit down and watch it and, you know, we'll, all of our focus will be on that. And are you trying to say that that's what we should be doing with Jesus, you know? Because he said, that's pretty convicting to me if it is. Mark, like, preached to himself in two minutes, felt the conviction, repented, you know, in that one moment. But there is something about, I didn't have to say anything. I just sat there. He did it all. He did, he did the whole thing. But there is something about that, isn't it? It's showing us something about the devotion of our heart and in a world full of things that we could bow down to, where do we bow? In a world where, where there's kings on every corner to be devoted to, are we devoted to Christ? You see, that's what he calls us to do, isn't it? If anyone would follow after me, let him deny himself. You're not king. Deny himself. Take up his cross 
follow me. He's calling for our wholehearted devotion. This is what he's asking us to do, is to be fully devoted to him. And a life that is devoted to Christ will center on Christ. It will glorify Christ. It will honor him. He will be the focus. But there's another king in this story. Let's look to the second king. The first king, Melchizedek, is a king that points to Christ. But Bera, the second king we look at, is a king that leads to corruption. The second king, when you get down to verse 21... It tells us in verse 17 that the king of Sodom comes out, but it also really focuses on the conversation with Bera down in verse 21. We know that based on all the text that we've read, this is before the, the famous Sodom and Gomorrah story, but, but we know that Sodom was a wicked city. And when you think about the fact that Bera is the king of Sodom, Bera is the king of burning. My estimation Bera represents the prince of the power of the air. And he represents all of the systems and the philosophies and all those worldviews that are represented in that. All those other kings to which we could bow down are all wrapped up in that. He makes Abram this offer. He says, Abram, look, you can have all of the material things that you've taken. All the material things that, they, that you've gathered from this raid on Cadillamer, you know, remember, these kings had come and they had raided those city-states who had been rebellious. Sodom, Gomorrah, the others that were there in the plain. Sodom, plain uh, there in Jordan. And, and all of those city-states, they had taken all of this plunder. He says, Abram, you can have all of it. Those citizens. Think about it for a minute. If you're in his position, your city's just been ransacked. It's just been destroyed by Cater Laomer. He's a king without any people. I need some people so that I can be a king again. I need some people to rebuild a city. You give me those people, just commit them to me, and you can have all the stuff. It's interesting that Abram doesn't do that. It's interesting to think about maybe the, the reasons why. He tells us um, in the text why. I mean, he gives us a reason, but I think there's a lot more going on there. We're talking about people that really Abram doesn't own and Bera doesn't own. Why are we talking about giving them back and forth? What, what's happening here? I believe that Abram knew the wickedness of that city. And I think that he knew that if they go back, there's a good chance that those patterns are going to start again. Maybe he was giving them this invitation. Maybe he, was, maybe he was giving them this opportunity to step away from that life and to ally themselves with the one true God. Maybe he was giving this opportunity to step away from the, from the unrighteous living that they had experienced in Sodom and experience this living over here where, where here at Hebron, at Mamre, these oaks of Mamre, we're worshiping the one true God here. Maybe he introduced them to the God most high. There's no indication that that happened, but there's also no indication that anybody accepted it either. He doesn't hand those people back over to Bera, but where do you find all those people going back to? They go right back to Sodom, Lot included. Lot who was living there in Sodom, when given this choice, when left to do what they wanted to do, they chose to go back and live in that city of unrighteousness. Let me tell you something. 
you will never make a choice to follow the Most High God. You don't choose to do that. Left to our own devices, do you know where we choose to go every time? We run right back to Sodom. That's where we head. In this particular passage, Abram gives his reason why. He says, you know, um, I wouldn't take anything. I'm not, I don't want to take anything from you. He says in verse 22, I've lifted my hand to the Lord most high. I, I'm, I'm, my trust is in him. And I don't want to take a thread or a sandal strap. I don't want anything from you. Because if, if I were to take all these things that you're giving me, people would look at me and they would see a connection between me and you. They would see an alliance here. And they would say, his blessings have come from Bera. And they would forget that my wealth and all these things have come from the one true God. Abram was really concerned about what people would notice and what people would see and where they would say. A while ago when I asked you to stand up for your team, very unashamedly, people stood to their feet. These are my colors. This is, where I'm, this is who I'm with. What happens when salt loses its saltiness? What happens when Christians are, are blurred and, and you can't tell who they're devoted to? You can't tell which team they're serving. This was the problem with Abraham. He was interested in the perception of that. He was very careful about it. Even though this offer would come and Barah may have gotten something out of it, maybe he would say, now I have something Abram owes me. And the next time that we get raided by somebody, Abram and his militia, they can come to the rescue. It was a deal for Barah. But there was more going on there for Abram. Even though it may have been beneficial in the short term for Abram to take that deal, he recognized what it meant and what the consequences of taking it were. You know, Bera, Bera's a lot like the world, isn't it? The world offers us a thing and says, this is going to meet your needs. See how this is going to meet your needs? And, 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 and what happens in that moment is, it takes us to a place that we really don't want to go. What's the old saying that that sin will take you where you don't want to, go, or take you places farther than you want to go, and keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay? You know that. This is what it offers. This is the deal. Think about all of the systems of this world. Think about the philosophy and the ideas of this world. I was in a conversation with someone this week, and this is what they were saying. I want you guys to pray for me. I want you to pray for me in my relationship with food. This is the way they phrased it. Listen. They said, when I get stressed out, I eat. I look for food to bring me comfort. I want you to pray for me that when I get to those moments, I wouldn't, listen, I wouldn't use food as a substitute for prayer. But instead of saying this thing is going to give me comfort, I would go to the one who gives me actual real comfort that this world cannot give. 
you take that sentiment and wrap it around every single system in life, around every single thing, around the idea of materialism, around the idea of pleasure, around the idea of entertainment, around the idea of intellectualism. The world offers a thing and says, give yourself to this, give yourself to me, sell yourself out to this thing, and this is what you'll get in return. And the offer, the deal, is many times very appealing. When I have on here that it's a king that leads to corruption, when I said a while ago that Barah represents the prince of the power of the air, represents Satan, and represents all of the systems of, of Babylon that this world has, you know, has and has corrupted, things that are institutions that could be meant for our good that are corrupted by the sinfulness of men, when we think about submitting to that, in the moment, it's really hard for us to think about submitting to Satan. We don't equate the two. We say, but this is what I want to do. This is not, I mean, this is not satanic. I want to tell you a story. Some of you know this, and some of you, it'll be new to you, but just hang on, okay? Just hang on with me. Stay with me for just a little bit. Some of you are familiar with the name Aleister Crawley. You know Aleister Crawley? Aleister Crowley was known as an Englishman, known for his obsession with the occult and all those sort of things. And as a young man, he got involved in all these mystic societies and all those sort of things. Um, but, but really, for our purposes today, you need to know about something that happened in early 1900s, and 19, uh, all, three, four, somewhere like in those, in that kind of early days, he marries this, this lady and they take a honeymoon to Egypt. While visiting a pyramid, Aleister Crowley, his account is that an entity appeared to him and began to speak to him and began to share with him the words that he would write into a book that would become a new religion. He would call it Thelema. And in that religion, he would, it was very, it was based on mysticism and occults and all this kind of stuff, you know. But when he writes that, those things out, he would later say that the voice that appeared to him, the entity that appeared to him in that pyramid was Satan, was a demon. He would say that later on. When you take all of what he had in Thelema, there were all these things that he wrote down in this book, but if you boil all of it down, this was the, this was the talk. This was the, there will be one command in this religion. Do what thou wilt, and this will be the whole of the law. Pause for just a minute, think about that. Do what you want to, this is the only command. Adam and Eve in the garden. This fruit looks good, doesn't it? It's going to taste good. It's going to be really good. And it will open your eyes and make you like God. Now, surely you're not going to die. Do what you want to. That's the whole of the law. And what do they do? 
In every moment of temptation that we have, we say, well, that's not really satanic. It's just me wanting to do a thing. There's nothing really evil behind that. It's just, the, it's just my desires, my natural desire to want to do those things. The natural desire of your heart is to rob God of glory. And the natural desire of the devil is to rob God of glory. It's the same thing. Do what thou wilt, and this will be the whole of the law. That statement out of Aleister Crowley, Aleister Crowley had a great influence on lots of people that you know, right? Immediately, as I say, that name had a big influence on Ozzy Osbourne. You know it because you've heard him sing, Mr. Crowley, boom, 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 you know? That's what he's talking about. Jimmy Page was heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley, and I think bought his house, you know, Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page. Later on, as, as things begin to be organized, you know, like Anton LaVey was a person who, who took Satanism and really organized it into a fashion. And you know what, you know, who was, who, who was a big influence on Anton LaVey was Aleister Crawley. And this one, do what thou wilt, and this will be the whole of the law. That's the heart of what Aleister Crawley was talking about. That's at the heart of Satanism. It's at the heart of the disobedience in our own hearts and our own because who becomes God in that moment do what thou wilt because you're the king you're God of your universe you have control of your life it's all the same thread and in that moment that philosophy while we would say this is a thing I'm David certainly I'm not submitting to the prince or the power of the yes we are it's the same attitude it's the same spirit in us. It's a very tempting lifestyle. It's a tempting place to go down, but it often ends in this place where we have gone further than we want to go, and we've stayed longer than we want to stay, and it's cost us longer than we want to pay. It's all the same thing. It's this submission to a king that's not God, and in any case, that's an idol, whether that is a drink or a drug or a desire for materialism or a devotion to pleasure or whether it's just simply doing what we want to because we want that to be the only rule. It's all the same thing. It's a king that's not Christ. King that points to Christ, king that leads to corruption. Final section that we want to look at today is these kings represent a choice. These kings represent a very clear choice, and it's a choice that you and I must make. Abram makes it. The place that I want to take your attention to in the text is verse 22. I think this is the place where Abram makes his devotion to the Lord very clear. Not only is it the moment where he submits to Melchizedek and, and bows to him in a sense by giving him a tenth of everything, but Abram states it in verse 22 where he says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you know what he's saying in that moment? I've lifted my hand to Christ. I don't need anything else. You can have all of this world. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. This is where my devotion is. The same way that we will wear our football colors and we will stand to cheer for them. I'm going to be just as vocal for him. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to show with my life 
that I am devoted to him. You can have all of those other things. All of those other things are not, are not going to matter to me. I, I'm going to choose Jesus. This is where the devotion of my life is going to be. I think it's something interesting to note, too, that, you know, every person has to make this choice for theirself. You can't decide that for someone else. I can't decide, Dan Horner, I can't decide where your devotion lies. It's only through, it's only through your own convictions, given through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you can devote yourself to Jesus and, and, and even and have the power to, be, to hold that commitment because he's holding you. When you look at this particular passage, it's a decision that Abram doesn't force on everyone else. Look at verse 24. He says, look, I'm not going to take anything but what these guys have eaten to stay alive until this point and to share the men who were with me, these guys that were with me to begin with. But then notice what he says. Let these other sheiks, these other guys who have led men into battle with me, those, that little alliance that's around me, let them take their share. If they want to take their part, they can take their part. But nothing am I going to take. I just need Jesus. See, every one of us must make a choice. Every one of us make a choice as to, to our own household. So I was preparing for this message this week, reading this, thinking these thoughts about this text. A passage from Joshua 24 came to mind. Do you remember that passage? Where Joshua's calling the people to make a decision as to who they will serve. They're surrounded by all of those gods of the Canaanites. Listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24. He tells the people, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Those gods beyond the river, you know, over in our, you know, those gods that you served in Egypt. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. This is where my devotion lies. Every one of us make, must make that decision. Listen to me today. Think about for a moment the devotion of your heart. Think about for today what colors you're wearing. What colors does the world see? Today, Casey came prepared with his Georgia on so that as I did that, he, he could stand up and, and point to that on his chest. He's got his colors on today. And, and before I even asked people to stand, and to, I noticed what Casey had on. and I, I, know, I mean, I knew Casey anyway, but I knew where he was going to stand up. because he, But wouldn't it have been strange if he would have worn that, that Georgia Bulldog thing? But when I, when I said, how about all those Roll Tide people? He stood up and gave us the Arsenio Hall, you know, and he, he cheered and whooped. It's out of, wait, but you got on a, and so many Christians today are bearing the name of Christ and yet their devotion out there to the, the, the devotion that the world sees is not to Christ. The proof's in the pudding in that regard. Who we're devoted to will show. Think for a moment about the devotion of your own heart. Think about the devotion of your family. What is your family devoted to? Is it Christ? 
Think about the attitude of our church. When we come into this place to worship, is it about the people that we're in this room with or is it about Christ? Is, is it about the experience or is it about the one we're here to worship? Think about in your own heart where your devotion lies and to which king you are submitting. You know something interesting to me? By way of invitation, I want you to look at one more thing in the passage. Verse 23 says, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Shoestrings are fairly small and significant things, aren't they? Micah got in the car the other day and his tennis shoe, he, he had broken the shoestring on his tennis shoes. That's annoying. You notice it after that, don't you? You don't notice, you don't notice shoestrings until it's broken. You don't notice shoestrings until someone ties them together without you knowing. And then this little bitty thing that was seemingly insignificant trips you up. When it comes to the devotion of our heart, we must be solely devoted to Christ. If we have one little shoestring, one little sandal strap that's devoted somewhere else, it'll trip us up. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Rooted and Resolved is a ministry of Center Grove Baptist Church. You can find us at centergrovebaptist.com.